0: 2005, uh, the London Jew uh, put out an exhibit in the, I should say not in, but near the, the primate enclosure, and they had a sign introducing the newest exhibit that read, warning, humans in their natural environment. And sure enough, in this exhibit, right next to the monkeys and the apes and the Arariatings, was an exhibit that contained eight human beings, four men and four women. They were provided each day with water and with food and with board games to play. But right there in the London Zoo was an exhibit containing human beings. It even had signage that talked about the species' diet, their habitat, their worldwide distribution, and threats. It was like any other exhibit at the zoo. Polly Polly Willis, who was in charge of the exhibit, said, The purpose of the exhibit is to downplay the uniqueness of human beings as a species. Seeing people in a different environment, among other animals, teaches members of the public that the human is just another primate. And then Tom Mahoney, one of the participants, he said, A lot of people think that humans are above other animals. When they see humans as animals, like here, it kind of reminds them that we're not that special. Remarkable thing for the London Zoo to do. But I wonder, were they wrong for doing it? I mean, how would we come and think about a bunch of humans in a zoo with other animals? How does the London Zoo come to that conclusion that there's nothing special about us? How do we respond to that? How do do we think about that? How do we think about, in our bulletin this morning, the Chamar people in India? The Chamar people, almost 50 million of them, who are considered, as we write here, untouchable. Within the Indian caste system, the Chamar people are some of the lowest of the lows. They are considered untouchable. They're not to be helped. They are to be resigned to their position of poverty, and they cannot change their position within the Indian society. Can we look at that and say that they're wrong for holding that position about that group of 50 million people? Is the London Zoo wrong about their view of humans as just one more set of animals? Today, we're going to the book of Genesis once again. We're going to Genesis chapter 1. And I said from the outset of our study in the book of Genesis that this book was given to us by God to provide his answers to life's most important questions. And today we're specifically going to hone in on God's answer to the question of who are we as humans? How did we get here? Why are we here? Does, Does the Christian have a different outlook upon humanity other than what is being presented by the London Zoo or modern science? Does the Christian have the ability to respond to the Indian people who consider the Chamar people untouchable. How do we think about and address these things? I'm here to tell you today that Genesis 1 gives us some very profound answers and challenges the secular thinking that's out there or even the religious thinking that's out there. Because wittingly or unwittingly, there are some huge implications if you continue in the train of thought like those of the modern zoo or of the london zoo or of the hindu religion so let's take a look at genesis chapter 1 if you have your bibles i invite you to open up to the very first page it's probably right there if you don't have a bible there's bibles provided for you in the seats in front of you we're going to be looking at verses 26 through the end of chapter 1 and i'm just going to tell you right now this is going to be kind of a four part series as we talk about humanity we're going to talk about gender, we're going to talk about marriage, and we're going to talk about work and rest in the upcoming weeks, all from Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 2. But let's read Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Here's God's answer to the question of how and why are we here. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed in Yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, I don't think it takes a biblical scholar to read that passage and to recognize that the book of Genesis isn't pulling any punches. The book of Genesis is coming, and it's wanting to make abundantly clear to us where we came from and why we are are here. In fact, look at verse 27 with me. It says, so God made man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis chapter 1 comes and it makes a very bold proclamation about the existence of humanity and where we came from. Now, I want to pull back for a moment before I look with you at what it's saying about humanity by first reminding us of the context in which the book of Genesis was first written. This is huge, and we don't think about this often. The book of Genesis was written to the Israelite community, the people of God, right after they had been delivered out of slavery in Egypt, where they'd been for 400 years. Why is understanding who this was written to and when it was written to important? I want to paint a picture for you for just a moment about the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, at the time when they have received this book. Here's what we need to keep in mind. When God inspired Moses to write the Pentateuch and to deliver it to the people, up to that point in history, it had only been through oral tradition passed down from generation to generation that the Hebrew people had any idea about the God they were supposed to worship. There was no organized structure to their worship. They only knew of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whatever had been passed down they did not have the law yet and so you have the hebrew people who had spent the last 400 years in slavery in egypt egypt which had a very well-defined religious practice who had all of their their gods and all of their systems and structures for worship and sacrifices and then here are the hebrew people living in light of that culture who had now been delivered And they're getting ready to enter into the promised land To live as a people of God it, And they're kind of clueless Like sometimes we pick on the Israelite people They get rescued out of the land of Egypt And then they make a golden calf And we're like how could they do that How could they do that They, they, didn't, they didn't have the scriptures yet I'm not, I'm not saying that we should say, condone it And say hey no you know what They get off the hook I'm saying like these were people that were unmoored And in fact These were a people who for 400 years had been told that they were subhuman. You might say, what do you mean? Look at racism is nothing new. The belief that certain human beings are better than others have been around since the beginning. You say, how do I know that? Say, I'm making it up. No, I'm kidding. I said, before the Israelites went into slavery, do you remember the story? They went down into Egypt because Joseph had already been down there, right? Joseph had been in Egypt. God had sent them there before the people to ultimately preserve their life. But if you remember, there's this little story at the end of the book of Genesis that recounts to the Israelites their history. And when they had gone down into Egypt, Joseph had dinner with his brothers. And in that story where Joseph is having dinner with his brothers, it says that the Egyptians did not sit at the same table as the Israelites because they were viewed as, guess what, unclean. So, so for all of the time that the Hebrews were in Israel, they were viewed as less than their Egyptian counterparts. They weren't viewed as being equal with the Egyptians. They were a lower class of humanity. And so it's in that context that God comes now and he writes these words to them. He writes these words to them so that they can know who they truly are and who all of humanity is. He wants to give them a solid structure for understanding themselves, the world, and the God that they are called to worship. So listen, when we read Genesis chapter 1, these aren't just like passing words. For the Israelites hearing these things, and I believe for us hearing today, it was giving them an anchor to hold on to. This was how God said they should view themselves and view the world Around them And so what's one of the first things that god says to them here's a couple of points that we can draw out from the text The first thing that we learn when god says that he created Humanity the first thing that we should recognize is that he's telling us listen, we are beings Created by god whatever you're going to say about humanity. We start with this. We are created beings We are beings created by god. Why is this important? Because it goes against the idea, both back then and today, that we got here by chance. It goes against the idea that humanity just sprung up out of the dirt, out of nothingness. It it comes directly to us and it says, listen, whatever you're going to say about humanity, you have to recognize that we're created things. In that way, the London Zoo kind of has partial truth. Because it looks at us and it says, oh, well, we're, we're just animals. I'm, I'm here to say in just a moment that's not the case, but, it, but we are created like animals, like everything else in creation. We were created by the word of God, not some random process. But there's something else that we have to take note of. It's the people of God today. When we remind ourselves that we are created beings, created by God, it means that we ourselves are not gods, right? Because God created us We are not gods ourselves. We are dependent, we're finite, we are derived. We're creatures in the broadest sense of the term. But, and there is a big but here, next point, we are unlike anything else in all of creation. We are not animals. Are you tracking with me? Can I get an amen to that? (laughs) One of the things when it comes in, it says that we have been created by God We need to see that we are unlike anything else in creation. We are not animals. In fact, Genesis 1, it gives us this pattern of creation. And then all of a sudden, it comes to humanity, and God breaks that pattern. And it's not by accident. It's by intentionality and with great purpose. You see, and I'm going to get scientific here for for a moment. Up to the creation of man, we read over and over again that each thing in creation was made according to its kind. Go back to day 3 and verse 11. And God said, Let the, wa- let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to what? Its kind on the earth. Day 5, verse 21. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to what? Their kinds. And every winged bird, according to what? Its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God comes in day six and says, And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Over and over again, it says that, that the different animals are made according to their kinds. And so, so here's where I want to get a little scientific for for a moment. Scientific language, it, we, we say that there's a, there's a given, a genus of, of animals or an aspect of creation. And then there are specific species within that genus. So, so like, for instance, you, you have birds, right? But there are different species of birds. And so when we say that things were made according to its kind, you've got the genus of, of birds. But within that genus, you have different species of birds. They're of different, they're of different kinds, And we see that with all different animals in creation. But when you come to humanity, when you come to the creation of man, we're not made according to any existing kind. Instead, God comes and he does something. He does something that shows where the London Zoo gets it completely wrong. He comes and he says, let's make man according to our kind. In my image. Look at this in Genesis 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. We are unlike anything else in creation. We are not animals because we are made in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. In fact, the text itself doesn't give us too much to go with when, when you look at it. But I believe that there are some significant things that we can extrapolate. Unlike birds, unlike fish, unlike anything else in all of creation, you and I have been made in the image of God. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 8 says these words. The psalmist comes in Psalm 8, starting in verse 3, and says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor you have given him dominion over the works of your hands you have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea whatever passes along the paths of the sea What's the psalmist saying? The psalmist is saying what is said here in Genesis 1. There's something different about you. There's something different about me. What's different about us is that we've been made in the image of God. Now, if I can just rewind for a brief moment. Sometimes people look at humanity. And they see the similarities between us and different aspects. Like, have you ever been to the safari park? I know it used to be the wild animal park. I'm just going with a new name, okay? Have you ever been to the safari park? You go and you look at the gorillas, and you see them move, and you see them carry their, their little ones, and you're just like, man, they look so much like us. There's these similarities. And, and so what modern science has done is it's come and it said, well, if there's these similarities between us, that means that we must be derived from that, right? That's where the theory of evolution comes from. Those similarities Science says Points to the fact That we are Of the same stuff But have you ever seen A painting of Picasso Not of him himself A painting that Picasso has done Does not Picasso Have a certain style I know it changed A little bit over time But, but when he When he kind of Finally settled into his groove, Picasso has a style You look at a Picasso painting And you're like Boom Picasso But if you notice And you put up Two Picasso paintings Next to each other Sometimes Picasso paints a very scenic picture of nature. Sometimes Picasso would paint a picture of a human. Well, at least if you think it looks like a human anyways. But but you look at those, and you say, that's a style. And we look at the similarities, and and we say, oh, wait a second. That painting didn't come from that painting. It came from the same what? Creator. Could it not be that the similarities that we see demonstrate the fact that we have a Similar creator Not that we're of the same stuff And that's what Genesis is coming and saying Listen we have one creator He is God He's made us We're part of his creation But we're not animals We are something altogether different We are created in his image Now what does that mean? Really quick let's talk about it We're created as reflections Representations of God in the world That's what it means to be created in his image we are his image bearers. We're mirrors that reflect God to the world around us. We, you and I have been created so that when the creation looks at us, it should see what the Creator would look like. And the, the way that the Creator looks in two very distinct ways the first is we are to be reflections of his character, we're to be reflections of his character. That's what it means to be made in the image of God, that the way that God is, the way that God interacts, the way that God engages with us is the way that we should engage with all the creation. Now, what do we know about our God? The scriptures tell us that he's a God of love, he's a God of goodness, he's holy, he's just, he's faithful, he's righteous. What we know of the character of our God should be manifested in the way that we deal with one another, the way that we deal with the world around us you're an image bearer i'm an image bearer we are designed to reflect a specific characteristics of our god his very character in the way that we engage the world but we're also created to reflect his image in another way his nature his character and then his nature what do i mean by his nature god in his very nature in the way that he deals with his creation There are some things that are unique to God himself that we have the opportunity to bear his image in. Let me explain. Do you remember when Adam, we're going to see this next week, he's in the garden, and it says that he's by himself, he can't find a helper suitable for him, and God looks at Adam being alone, and he says, it is not good that man should what? Be alone. Why does he say it's not good? If you've been around this church for any period of time, you know the answer. It's because... Adam, in isolation by himself, could not bear the nature of God because God has existed for all eternity in relationship. Our God is relational. We are to be relational. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have existed eternally, one nature, three persons. So when Adam's out there all by himself, God's saying, I'm not done yet with my creation because man should not be alone. To bear my image, he must have the ability to relate with somebody of his kind. See, our God is a relational God. You were made for community. I was made for community. Man is not to live in isolation. Now, this is one of the things that's interesting about being made of the image. I didn't say this the first hour. I'm going to say it this hour, so good for you guys. Um, I was convicted this week. We live in an interesting place. We live in an interesting place because we, for those of you that live up here in Valley Center, most people who move up to Valley Center move to Valley Center to, um, well, let's just be honest, get away from people, right? We get our two acres, we get to have space, we get to have some room, I get to only have to engage you if I want to engage you kind of a thing. The truth of the matter is that God has created us to be in relationship with other people. And God loves those who have been made in his image. We know this to be true. In in fact, when we gather in places like this, you are surrounded by other image bearers right now. And because God loves his creation, even in its fallenness, and he's made each person here in his image, where there's a lot of people, there's a lot of God's love. Because each person there isn't there by accident. They've been made in the image of God. God's a relational God. Relationships are not things to be run from, but things to be embraced. Another aspect of God's nature that's on display in us, or that should be, is that God works, therefore we work. God works. God creates. God makes. In fact, in Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Sometimes we think that work is a result of the curse. That we have to work because of the curse. The fact of the matter is, you and I were made to work because God works. God created. He made the heavens and the earth. He's engaged in work. We're to be engaged in work. We are given the resources of the earth in order to manifest and to use them in the way that God would want us to. And then finally, God exercises dominion. We are to exercise dominion. When was the last time you threw out the word dominion? You know, maybe with your kids. You're like, this is my dominion. God has called us to exercise dominion. What, what does that mean? Do you see when Adam is naming things? Later in chapter two, we're gonna see he names things. Just as God named the big things, he then gives Adam the task of naming the animals. Why? Because because he wants Adam to see, listen, as I take care of the universe as a whole, now you are to take care of this what I've given you, the garden, the animals, these are yours and for your oversight, not to be abused, but instead to be used. He says, fill the earth and subdue it. Use it for the glory of my name. See, what humanity does is we take things and we use it to excess in our fallenness now. We take the things that God has caused us to, to, to care for and to nurture and to cultivate, and what do we do with them? We now abuse them. But that idea of of presiding over the creation, of using things for the good and for the flourishing of humanity, we're supposed to do that. We're not supposed to abuse it. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. You, as a human being, have been made in the image of God, unique from anything else in all of creation. You're not an animal. I'm not an animal. You've been created to reflect the very character of God. That charge was given to nobody else. But humans, you're created to reflect his very nature. There is something unique about humanity. Now, here's where I want to pause and say something very important. What we believe, according to the word of God, is this. All men and all women of all races are made equally in the image of God. Can I get an amen to that? All men and all women of all races. I don't even like using the word races because it implies distinction. When the only thing is the, what is it, the melatonin in your skin or whatever? What is it? Is it me- what is it? Melatonin? Yeah, thank you. I'm looking at the nurses. Okay. Yeah, right? Like that's, we we're, ju- we're all of the same stuff. We're of God's kind. We're all made equally in the image of God. Now, over the next few weeks we're going to talk about how this fleshes out in some ways within marriage within the genders but what is whatever is true of humanity is true of both men and women and of all people regardless of the color of their skins now what i want to do for a second here is i want to show you if this is true and we believe it to be true This is the word of God That we are made in the image of God The implications of this is, are huge That this message is a, world, is a message that the world needs to hear And that the, in fact The only way that, that human beings can have purpose and value in this world Is based upon this doctrine right here In, in fact, let me just run through that really fast So here's the immediate implications. If these things are true, and they are, then number one, here's what it means. Here's an implication of it. Every human being has a purpose. Every human life has a purpose. What is that purpose? To reflect the character and nature of God in the world. Me, you, every day that we wake up, the question before us is, I've been made in the image of God. My job ultimately doesn't matter. My relationships, first and foremost, don't matter. My Finances don't matter. The first thing that I'm, the, the purpose of why I'm here is to make God known to the world around me. And I will do that through my job. I will do that through my relationships. I will do that through my play. I will do that through my fill in the blank. Every person has a purpose, there's not a wasted life. And so for you or I to look and say, what, why am I here? What does my life even matter? It matters because God made you in his image. He puts you on this planet. And he says, no matter how old or young, no matter what gender you are, you're here to reflect his image in the world. There's no wasted parts. The other day I was cleaning out my garage and I came across this metal rod. And I looked at it and I'm like, why on earth is this thing here? I'm never gonna, this metal rod, what, what is this thing? It's just a thin piece of metal. And so what did I do? I threw it away. Two weeks later, I'm putting up, this fence, this ongoing project, it's, it's getting closer. And I realized in a moment, oh, not nah, that metal rod, it was supposed to thread it through the end of the fence as I tighten the fence and all those things. In the moment, I'd forgotten I, why I had bought it. I didn't know its purpose, and so it became meaningless to me. Don't you ever think that about your life. And don't you ever think that about anybody else's life. Because your life has a purpose. You might say, I'm sick, I'm old, I'm not strong, I'm weak, I'm whatever it is. I don't have this gift or that gift. Every life has a purpose wherever you're at to make God known in whatever situation you live in. But there's a second thing. The second thing about this, the implication, what it means for us, is that every human life has value and worth. The purpose and human value and worth, they don't quite go hand in hand like you might think. They are two different things. Every human being's life has value and it has worth. According to the Bible, no matter who you are, no matter what you're from, no matter what you've done, it doesn't matter. Your life has value and worth because intrinsically, you have been made in the image of God. He has imprinted that upon you. And if God says, I've given you my image... It means that your life matters. You have value and you have worth. It's been placed upon you because God made you in his image. He didn't share his image with anybody else. He gave it to you. I started this morning by talking to you about that exhibit in the London Zoo. I started by sharing with you about the Shamar people in India. I would like to propose to you that if we forsake the idea that a human being is made in the image of God, then we can no longer say that life has value, that a human life even has purpose, or it has worth. That the only foundation for human life having value and worth and purpose stems from this being true. And if this is not true, there is no way to get establishing that humans have value and they have worth. And now you want to know why that's so significant today? How many of you have heard of people talking about human rights? We say it all the time. It's all over the news. We look at illegal immigrant detention centers, and one party says, these people shouldn't be treated this way. They have what? Human rights. And then another part of a party comes in and says, well, what about the rights of the people that are already here? And, and, And there's this bickering, this, this back and forth. And yet, human rights completely vanishes if you don't believe that people are made in the image of God. See, I started by saying that the London Zoo says that we're animals just like everybody else. Because we're animals just, just like everybody else. Did you know that there's no way to establish through science that your life or my life has any value? Science can't do it. All science can do is observe you and I and they can notice that we're made of similar stuff with other things in creation. Science can even go so far as to say a human being is more complex than other parts of creation, but science will never be able to say that your life has any value or worth. It's crazy to me that we have therapists that are out there that come and say humans have value and they have worth, and somebody who comes in and who's depressed or suicidal says your life matters, your life has value, your life has, has purpose, To which I would say, how do you get there? Are you going to tell the person that scientifically their life has value and worth? Because according to the evolutionary process that's taught today, the theory of evolution says you're just one more animal. In fact, Bertrand Russell, a philosopher, he one time came and and he said in response to these things, he said, when you look at humanity, there's nothing inside of us that scientifically can show that we got here with any purpose. We're just an accidental collection of atoms. That's what Russell says. It led Oliver Wendell Holmes. Do you guys know who Oliver Wendell Holmes is? He's a chief justice, big time thinker of the last century. He said, scientifically, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. How do you start feeling about yourself right now, right? See, that's where science leaves you. But then philosophy, philosophy also leaves you leaving, feeling empty and hollow. Philosophy can't establish human worth and, and value. See, philosophy comes to you and says, the, the most modern philosophers, because they realize that human rights are such a big issue, in fact, the United Nations just a few years ago put out their Declaration of Human Rights. Philosophy tries to, to, to tell us that human beings have value and worth, and so they argue for something called capacity. They say that your life and my life has value because we have capacity. We have the capacity to reason. We have the capacity to, to be self-conscious. We have the capacity to make choices and demonstrate preferences. We have the capacity to make moral choices. But does it Having capacity establishes the fact that your life has worth and value? It was a number of years ago the Supreme Court ruled that a baby could be aborted in the womb, and ultimately the argument rested on that very fact. They said that a human being in the womb does not yet have, guess what? Capacity. And so therefore is not afforded the worth, the value, and the rights of somebody who is outside the womb. Peter Singer, a Princeton philosopher who... You guys have probably heard of, because he's a bit crazy in the eyes of everybody, but he says it like it is. He totally believes in this philosophical idea of, you have worth and value as long as you have capacity. And So Peter Singer's the guy that comes and says, well, if we agree that human beings' worth and value is derived from their capacity and therefore a baby not yet born doesn't have capacity and so therefore can be killed, at what point does a child demonstrate capacity? What do you do with somebody who is mentally disabled? What do you do with the senile? What do you do with the invalid who don't have capacity? See, Peter Singer's the guy who often writes the articles and then the New York Times goes crazy. He's the guy that argues that you can euthanize and you can infanticide anybody Because they don't yet have what? Capacity. He just takes it to its logical conclusion. And so listen, we exist in a world where people every single day like to to live in little boxes. They like to have their opinion about this issue over here and this issue over here. And they never connect the dots that if you say this over here, i.e. human beings, are only valued based upon capacity. How it ultimately trickles down and says, what happens when you don't have capacity? You see, Singer just calls it like it is. And so G.K. Chesterton, a theologian, he said years ago, he said this. See if you can, I think you can track with me on this. He says, as a politician, the secular person will cry out that all war is a waste of life. And then, as a philosopher, will admit that all life is a waste of time. The secular person goes first to a political meeting where he complains that people are being treated as if they were beasts. And then he goes to a scientific meeting where he gets up and he proves that all human beings are beasts to begin with. Do do you see the, the madness? Yet we come, and we give God's answer to it. And we say, no, there is a value, and there is a worth, and there is a purpose for every person created because God says they were made in my image. It's why C.S. Lewis would write You have never met a mere mortal That the people that you and I Bump shoulders with Run, run around with Who we scream at when they cut us off huh, Are made in the image of God And should be engaged and treated As though their lives have value and worth But let me ask you this question How well do we do at living as though that were true? When was the last time you looked at somebody who treated you in a way that you didn't appreciate and you thought to yourself, before I respond here, I need to acknowledge that they've been made in the image of God? See, there's two more things I need to say real quickly. The first is this while we have been made in the image of God, we don't treat each other as image bearers of God and we don't act as image bearers of God, do we? We don't. This is the truth. James would say in James 3, 9, With our tongues we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Do you see the contrast there? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Why on earth did you do that? You're an idiot. Praise Him, all creatures here below. You are just unbelievable. I just can't believe... Praise Him. Do you see the contrast? Yeah, we don't do it. This is where Jesus comes in. You see, we fail to bear the image of God. We fail to treat people as though they are image bearers and so jesus comes in jesus comes in and hebrews 2 tells us that he comes and he takes on flesh and he becomes not just perfect god but perfect man in every way that we fail to bear the image of god jesus fulfilled it perfectly in a sinful world and in doing so He could stand before the Father and say, I have fulfilled everything that humanity failed to do. I fulfilled what Adam should have done. And in my perfection, I stand before you as righteous and say now, I want to stake claim on humanity. By dying for them, by dying in their place, by sacrificing myself for their sins, I want to restore the image of you once again in them. That's what Christ comes and does. Where you and I have failed to be those image bearers, Jesus fulfilled it completely. We become restored image bearers through Jesus Christ. Jesus comes, the Son of God, and as 2 Corinthians three eighteen says, and we with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If you're a Christian here today in this room, it's not just simply that you and I come and we say, oh, yeah, 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 I get it. Everybody is worth and value because we've been created in the image of God. You should hear that and say yes and amen. That's why we hate racism. That's why we hate gender inequality. That's why we hate people who are sexually abused or physically abused because it's a destruction of the image of God. But then we come and we say, but... We don't just stop there. We recognize that we, if we are in Jesus Christ, have been made new creations who are actually able to live in the world and treat one another the way that we were made to treat one another. And we take it seriously because Jesus Christ came, he died, his sins covered, or His blood covered our sin, and he has made us new. We put off the old self, we put on the new self. We can now live as those restored image bearers. My prayer for Valley Center Community Church is we just don't take a message like this and think about it as doctrine to know, but it's doctrine to know, to wash over our hearts, and then to live out in and through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's engage the world as those image bearers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that in our weaknesses and in our frailty, oh Lord, you make up what we lack through Jesus Christ. We bring no good to the table. We have destroyed her image in us in more ways than we can even count. And yet, Lord, you come, and through Jesus Christ's promise and newness of life. Not just one day in heaven that we get to experience the fullness of this, because we will. That's the promise. But even now, we can start to live. And it's why, Christ, you came and you said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Lord, we want people to know and to be restored to you, their creator. We pray this through Christ our Lord and all God's people said, amen.